Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm your host, one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Maté. How's it going, Katie? Good, you? I'm well. And as a reminder, if you go to usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com, you can sign up to support us and get all kinds of bonus content. Including extended interviews and our Thursday throwdowns, your midweek dose of media madness, which is always a good time. So don't deprive yourself. Give yourselves the gift of an exclusive Useful Idiots experience. And this week we have a guest that all Useful Idiots will enjoy because it's the co-founder of the show, Matt Taibbi. OG. Useful Idiot OG. Yeah. 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 And a lot to talk to him about. There's been a lot happening with the Twitter files and also with some new developments in the Hunter Biden laptop story, which Matt's been writing about. And uh, guess what, everybody? Get more evidence that this was not Russian disinformation. I don't know, Aaron. Sounds like you're uh, repeating a Russian talking point. It sounds like you're <laughs> pulling straight uh, from the RPB, the Russian RPB, playbook. The Russian playbook. Yes, I yeah. am. Indeed. So, yeah. Well, and by the way, you know, I just want to share a very anticlimactic story. I uh, tried to help my friend and I last night. A dog was abandoned. And my friend who has a car saw the announcement and he asked me if I wanted to go help rescue a dog. And we went all the way to Brooklyn and we were going to drive it all the way to Staten Island. And then it turned out the vet was closed. Then he got a ticket. So no good deed goes unpunished. That's not the takeaway, though. The takeaway is help. And it'll sometimes work out. And even if it doesn't work out, you know you did the right thing. Good for your friend for trying to uh, lend a hand. Yeah. So let's get to our four basic food groups. What do we have for Democrats suck? So for Democrats suck, well, people may remember that Joe Biden, one of the things that Joe Biden ran on was uh, canceling student debt. And indeed, he had it in his power to cancel all student debt. But he did it in a way that was subjected to Supreme Court review, and it may not actually pass uh, muster. But again, had he wanted to, he could have just done it. So this is a typical example of Democrats pretending they can't do something when it's really that they don't want to do something. And uh, lo and behold, as people know, Biden has announced uh, that he's running again for reelection, which is in itself a Democrat suck because he had suggested that he be a one term Democrat. Another thing that makes Democrats suck on top of that is that the DNC has announced it has no plans to hold uh, uh, debates. So they don't really believe in democracy or primary process. And then on top of this, we have the fact that Biden has is now uh, beginning to collect student debt. So the Department of Education is set to resume collecting debt with interest in September. Great thing to be running on. America's back. America's America back. Is back. Yeah. Yeah. The Twitter account holding Biden accountable notes. So not only is Biden stupidly restarting student loan payments during his reelection campaign, he's also underfunded the Department of Education to the point that it can't even afford to properly handle collecting while canceling the debt instead would be free. So there you have it. Vote Biden. <laughs> it's going to be a great campaign. I yeah. can't wait. Cannot wait. Yeah. All right. For Republicans suck, check out this headline from Jacobin. So they're talking about this new spending plan from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and they say that by setting a budget ceiling, Republicans are forcing Joe Biden to choose between funding for social programs and the national security state, knowing full well which one the president will select. So basically, the heart of Kevin McCarthy's spending plan is uh, a debt ceiling limit, and that will force 
uh, spending cuts. And of course, the Republicans have their eyes on social spending, especially. And the Social Security Administration is even warning about what the impact will be. This is what they say. These cuts, quote, would be catastrophic for the agency and for people depending on Social Security programs supporting their daily needs. So the uh, group Social Security Works went out on the Hill and confronted some Republicans about whether or not they intend on supporting this plan and check out their response. Hey, Congressman, are you a yes or a no on Speaker McCarthy's plan to cut Social Security? Nothing? Are you a yes or no on Speaker McCarthy's plan to cut Social Security? Remain quiet for the moment. Hey, Congressman, yes or no on Speaker McCarthy's plan to cut Social Security? The yes or no? Do you believe SSA cuts are a backdoor cut to Social Security? Do you think that SSA cuts are a backdoor cut to Social Security? Do you have the power of speech? Do you think that like cutting funds to uh, the Social Security Administration is a backdoor cut to Social Security? You know, on all Pardon these me. questions, I'd rather, rather be sitting in my office carefully thinking them through and trying to figure out exactly what the foundation of the question is. Redemption. Any comment? Thanks. So I just love... Uh that response from that one Congress member, I'm remaining quiet for the moment. Yeah. That's an honest answer, I guess. I think he's preying on it. Yeah, yeah. I think they're all yeah. preying on it. Well, you said that that's the heart of Kevin McCarthy's program, and I think it speaks to the heartlessness of it. Mm-hmm. That's mm. right. They should work till they're 100. They should give up their Social Security. <laughs> all right. So uh, let's move on to Isn't That Weird? So for Isn't That Weird, we have a very weird story about someone named Nicholas Alahaverdian, a.k.a. Nicholas Rossi, who is a Rhode Island man who is a fugitive accused of faking his own death and fleeing to Scotland to avoid charges involving identity theft and fraud and a rape accusation. And now he's pretending to be a British man named Arthur Knight. And what happened is he was caught after he checked himself into a hospital for COVID and he was identified as Rossi through his tattoos and fingerprints. Of course, he's claiming that his fingerprints were tampered with and that his tattoos were administered while he was unconscious in the hospital. And here he is being interviewed on Dateline. We were once a normal family, but thanks to the media, our lives have been interrupted. And we'd like privacy, and I would like to go back to being a normal husband. But I, I can't, because I can't breathe. I can't walk. Uh, people say, that's an act. Let me try to stand up. Let me try to stand up. Exactly. Exactly. What do you say to, to someone who believes that, that you are Nicholas Oliverdian? I am not Andrea. I am not Nicholas Oliverdian. I do not know how to make this clear. What do you say to people who say these are crocodile tears He's putting on a show. This is all an act. Oh, that's a right low blow. That's a low blow. That's a right low blow. He's committed to the bit. He's very committed. Yeah. The part where he tries to stand up and he can't stand up because yeah. of his uh, fake medical condition. Yeah. 
that he's faking is uh it's impressive it is impressive I just, what i wonder is like why how does he think doing this interview serves him it's a good and question is he just doing it because he knows he's gonna get imprisoned and extradited anyway so he might as well have some fun before right it all happens might because as well try is, out his improv skills yeah exactly this is maybe his last chance to act and explore that side of him but apparently apparently so so they found matching tattoos between right. uh, his fake name and the real guy and he says he had some story about how actually this was uh, this happened to him when he was in the hospital for covid yeah unconscious and they and they, and they forced him to get these tat like yeah. they they actually tattooed him yeah they tattooed him yeah and then also they apparently found a notebook of him like writing down all these other pseudonym uh, like workshopping all these other student like pseudonyms for himself yeah. but there's a lot of evidence um that he's not who he says he is right that he is that guy but yeah. i guess he wanted this video as you as you suggested perhaps he wants to explore acting uh he won't have that many more chances although he could start like a prison acting troupe there's he, that. Should. Yeah, he should he should maybe he can get out early oh right on good on, behavior on good behavior right, if, yeah. he, if he, he brings his his gift of acting to the prison yard. Right. That's true. Yeah. And also, of course, maybe he thinks delusionally that this will uh, create some sympathy for him, garner him some sympathy. Mm. I'm not sure, though. I'm feeling admiration for his acting skills, but and his commitment to right. his acting skills, yeah. I should say. But yeah. sympathy, no. Right. right he no. doesn't break character. Apparently, yeah. that British accent isn't that good either. No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, somebody pointed out that he sounds like the British, like the fake British guy in Something About Mary. Remember, like the pizza delivery guy who pretends oh, to yeah, be a British architect. Yeah. yeah, that might have been his inspiration. And similar thing, where a, it's a it's a it's a American pizza delivery worker pretending to be a British architect. And right. So maybe that was his inspiration. It could have been. In which case, good job. Great job. Yeah, great job. So yeah. isn't that weird? Slash, isn't that admirable and impressive? <laughs> yeah. What do we got for? Isn't that terrible? Well, on this show, we love a good update on the state of robot technology and the robots who will soon be ruling our world. So the MIPD is getting ahead of the game here and deploying robot dogs, a new fleet of robot dogs to the streets. So here's here's a clip. So this is from AJ Plus and they're pointing out that these robots are being used to fight crime, but they're gonna, they're increasing fears that they could be used to surveil communities of color in New York City. DigiDog is now part of the toolkit that we are using. DigiDog, created by Boston Dynamics, has lights and camera to communicate with police. After it was deployed in early 2021, critics condemned its use as a way of over-policing low-income communities. The NYPD stopped using the robot shortly after. NYPD says it's used robots since the 70s for hostage situations and hazmat incidents. In 2020, the New York City Council passed the POST Act, which requires police to be transparent about their tech and surveillance tools. Well, I do like the name DigiDog. I'm, I'm into too. that. That's pretty good. DigiDog so, is a good name. Maybe it's not so terrible after all, at least in terms of uh, the branding. Right. DigiDog. Good branding, yeah. DigiDog. Watch out for DigiDog on the streets if you're in New yeah, York City. Be careful. DigiDog. Have a treat on you to throw at him or her. And speaking of treat, we have a great treat for you today, which is the co-founder of the show, Matt Taibbi, is back to discuss with us the latest in the Twitter files, which includes him being threatened with prison by a member of Congress, uh, this in the aftermath of his appearance on MSNBC with Mehdi Hassan, which we also discuss. 
We're also going to get into the latest on the Hunter Biden laptop story and a former senior CIA official, Mike Morrell, admitting that the idea for that statement that he put out, along with a number of other former intelligence officials, claiming that the Hunter Biden laptop was a Russian operation, that came from, guess what, the Biden campaign. So we are going to get into that and a whole lot more with Matt Taibbi. And a little bit of Elon gossip. A little bit of Elon gossip, too. All right, let's go to Matt Taibbi. Welcome back, Matt Taibbi, OG, useful idiot. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Katie, Aaron. Of course. Good to see are you both. Are you safe? Are, you, are, <laughs> are, are any Congress people trying to bang down your door? They, they are they're braying at my door uh, as we speak. Uh, right. No, I think uh, I'm not yet on the way to Florence, Colorado, Supermax right. prison. So, Well, um, we, we jest, but what was it like? You did indeed uh, receive a somewhat threatening letter I from Stacey Plast. I actually didn't receive it. I had to find out about it on, on the news. Oh, okay. Yeah, which was even weirder. Um, this is, the whole thing is so surreal. Uh, but, you know, finding out about that is crazy. Uh, you know, if, if you haven't heard the story, obviously, you know, there, I, I made a mistake in um, a couple of tweets that came out in that disastrous interview that I had with uh, Mehdi Hassan, who then, you know, tweeted out that I had lied to Congress, which was then picked up by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And then apparently by the Democrats in this weaponization of government committee, who in turn sent me a letter um, accusing me of lying to Congress and threatening me with five years in prison. And the irony of the whole thing is that in the letter, um, although I did actually make a mistake in the tweet they're, they're referring to, they're actually making a mistake in the ac accusation. But even beyond that, uh, the idea of threatening a reporter with five years in prison is so crazy. And, uh, you know, apart from Ryan Grimm and uh, both of you and, uh, you know, and some other folks, there's been basically no response by reporters, which, um, you know, <laughs> I don't even know what to say at this point, you know. Their lack of a response shows how complicit they are basically in the very censorship that you're exposing with the Twitter files because uh, rather than defend you over being threatened with prison on false grounds, they don't want to draw attention to the reporting you did and and defend it because it implicates too many people. And so they just need to ignore it. And again, and just to, just to remind people of this, I mean, this has been litigated now so many times, but basically you made a mistake in a tweet where you got an acronym wrong. You got one letter of an acronym wrong, which is the most minor mistake I can think of. But yet, uh, and on that basis, you were threatened with prison on the false belief that you made the same mistake before Congress, which you didn't. And the acronym was basically there's CIS, uh, which is a nonprofit group funded by the government, and CISA, which is a government group. And both of them work together anyway. So really, it's a distinction without a difference. But somehow this has led to you being threatened with prison. Yeah, I mean, the irony is uh, I, I made the mistake in part because I had seen so many um, of these escalations, as Twitter calls them, about content moderation that involved all three of these groups, um, EIP, CIS, and CISA, uh, that I, you know, the acronym just got scrambled in my head. And I, I was looking at one uh, screenshot. I saw CIS. I thought, I thought it was a typo. And I did yeah. what journalists do. You know, you put 
the thing yeah. in brackets so that people can right. tell that you've added something. And um, and it was wrong. You know, it's a, it's a mistake. But they are openly partners, CISA and uh, the Election Integrity Partnership and the Center for Internet Security, which incidentally is also you know, significantly funded by uh, the Department of Homeland Security. So there really couldn't be less of a difference, you know, substantively, uh, if if you tried. But, uh, but that's not even, that's not even the point. I think, you know, what you were talking about before, you know, about the complicity angle is interesting, because like we, we just put out another Twitter files, you know, Andrew Lowenthal, uh, who is, um, used to work for a group called Engage Media, sort of a um, digital rights activist. Uh, In one of his threads, he shows uh, that there was an Aspen Institute um, tabletop exercise about the potential for a a hack and leak episode involving Hunter Biden. We knew this about this before, but he showed these emails about that that have a whole bunch of prominent journalists who attended that conference and, and then said nothing when the actual thing happened shortly afterward. Now, maybe they granted it off the record privileges to, to the attendees, but they're really, that's, that's just emblematic of how reporters in this space have become more like partners for these folks than, than reporters. Like if I had been to that tabletop exercise, even if I had given off the record privileges, and then a month later the act, that exact thing happened, I would have found a way to get that story out somehow. You know, maybe hint to another reporter. I don't know, uh, but it's crazy. Yeah. So tell us about your latest Twitter files drop. Yeah, it's it's actually um, by two other people, uh, Matt Orfalia, who I think you both know. He's the sort of wonderfully funny video editor who does all these mashups. Uh, but he did a, he did a Twitter files drop about the first thing is about this thing called uh, Pro- project Osprey. We found a document that pertains to Twitter's early self examination about how many accounts they had linked to the, Ru- the internet research agency in Russia. And there's a couple of interesting things in there, but the most interesting thing we found was that they had two different algorithmic lists of Russians. They they were called a priori Russians and inferred Russians. And on the list of inferred Russians was Jill Stein. And she was on this list called is underscore Russian. And uh, as was WikiLeaks. I talked to, to both uh, Dr. Stein and, and, and Stella Assange about this. And, you know, they both had, you know, really horrified reactions. But the it was it was interesting in both cases, because um, you know, Dr. Steins was probably had, she was on this list mainly because of sharing activity. Uh, and it just shows you how these algorithms work. Um, even Twitter in the, in the report said that her presence on the list spoke to the, uh, quote, overly broad nature of, um, is underscore Russian. This is kind of a, a really good window into how algorithmic censorship works. They create a bunch of rules and they can be completely ridiculous. Uh, once you set, set them out into the wild, um, it can capture all sorts of people who don't really belong there. And then they'll be deamplified or, you know, visibility filtered or whatever it is. So that's interesting. And when I talked to, when I got in touch with Stella, 
she made the really interesting point that this list um, probably captured people among other things, because they might've used tools like the Tor browser, which would, you know, route um, some communications through, uh, you know, a browser that's registered in Russia. So for people who are trying to evade surveillance, these, you know, really important civil liberties tools that can drop you in a, in a bucket that calls you Russian. You know, maybe that's not exactly what happened with WikiLeaks, but that can happen. So, you know, both of those things are interesting and it's another example of, um, you know, how there's, there's lots of stuff in the Twitter files that if the quote unquote left cared, you know, (laughs) there's there's stuff pertaining to that there. Uh, But yeah, they they don't particularly. The other one um, is by Andrew Lowenthal, who, again, he worked in the digital rights space for a long time, but he, he, it was the same space uh, that eventually sort of turned into the anti-disinformation world. And, and one of the reasons he's in the project is because um, he watched a lot of his colleagues shift from being rights advocates to being anti-disinformation advocates, which is re- more, really more like pro-government messaging. So he sort of recounted his horror at looking through the files and th- seeing things like civil society organizations meeting with the military, you know, these journalists mixing with uh, these Aspen tabletop exercises and not reporting on it. There's just a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Those are out right now. Um, I'm being shadow banned a little bit <laughs> on, on Twitter, so they're not reaching quite as many people, but it's still interesting. And how do you connect with Andrew Lowenthal? Because obviously you work with um, Matt or Philea on your uh, site on Racket News. But how do you connect with Andrew? Well, about two and a half months into the Twitter Files project, I realized that this story was way too much for one reporter to deal with. So I put out kind of a general APB saying, um, you know, I need help. Because really the job I figured out, um, or at least I thought, was to try to count how many of these anti-disinformation organizations there were, how many of them were taking money from, say, the Pentagon or from the State Department or from the Foreign Office in Britain. And uh, because initially when I looked through it, I thought, well, it can't be that big a number. And maybe there's 10 of these groups, right? I, I can count that myself. Pretty quickly, I figured out it was more than I could count. And so I needed more bodies to to look at it. We have a list now that's, you know, it's running into the three and four hundreds of organizations. And so we decided to put out sort of a taxonomic survey of what all these groups are and a starter's kit to understanding this censorship industrial complex. And Andrew is one of the first people who answered. He had worked at, I believe it's the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard. Uh, one of his colleagues also was there and that and they're you know, that's kind of a key organization in, in, in this universe as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's been a great help and, and, and really helped us understand a lot about uh, how these organizations do things. And Aaron, I don't know what you guys can reveal, but I know Aaron is one of the reporters. who's. Yeah, I was going to say. I, didn't know I mean, I'm not I'm not blowing up anyone's spot that's in your your piece. No, um, the only problem here is I'm really behind on what I have to do. So I just, you know, but no, Aaron is Aaron has definitely been involved. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring Aaron in is because we found we found some stuff in there about sort of the origin of Russiagate, um, and particularly the 
the moment when they were counting how many maybe Russian accounts there were. Uh, remember the Senate was sort of deeply interested in how many Russians there were on Facebook and how many Russians there were on Twitter. And this was the beginning of that kind of mania uh, in the summer of 2017. A lot of the people that we were looking at were deeply involved in the process of doing that counting. And we thought we had some new information. And so that's, that's one of the things that we're looking at. And you know, Aaron might be, might be doing some work on that. Yes, yeah, stay tuned. Um, yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> but, but meanwhile, uh, you at Racket News, uh, you and Matt Orfilli just put on a new video about all the times MSNBC parroted straight up lies about one aspect of this, which was the Hamilton 68 dashboard, uh, which was basically this fake project. And you've given us all this evidence about what a scam this was, looking at Russian bots on the internet. And what the Twitter files underscored was that the people behind it knew they had no evidence, but still were flagging accounts as being Russian. So uh, you and Matt Arfilia put out like an 11-minute video, a compilation of all the times MSNBC parroted this and got got it wrong. So basically all the times they need to retract. We're not going to play all 11 minutes, but let's just watch a little sample of this. McCarthy publicly charges that the United States is infested with foreign forces at work in our politics. And he says that he has a list of 600 Twitter accounts that appear to be linked to the Russian government. That's a lie. These Kremlin-linked accounts. These Kremlin-linked accounts. These Kremlin-linked accounts. Russian-linked accounts. Kremlin-linked accounts. A foreign influence. Kremlin-oriented Twitter accounts. Kremlin-linked Twitter accounts. Russian-linked Twitter accounts. Impersonating Americans. They are every day playing on social media. There's a website called Hamilton 68 that measures it. This Russian influence tracker on Twitter. The Russian dashboard is a real-time dashboard of Russian influence. You know, the Russian networks that we monitor. Accounts allegedly linked to bots and trolls that are linked to Russia. Russia linked accounts and bots according to a Russian tracker. To track what Russian bots are doing. Kremlin linked accounts. Kremlin efforts. Kremlin attack. You're supposed to be annoyed already by by then. Like, like I can't I can't possibly go on any longer. Yeah. Uh, and it goes on to for like another nine minutes yeah to 279 that. that's how many like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. i know it's crazy and it's yeah. and it's even funnier than that because the, originally uh i was i was really gung-ho about this project my idea was to put out a list of all the things that we had found in the twitter files that would raise the need for an editor's note or a correction or a retraction in major media news stories because we found all kinds of stuff. There were, there were, you know, I would say dozens of discrete incidents that, you know, that at least raised questions about some pretty major news stories. Like, just to take an example, there was a, a story that the New York Times did um, about Spanish language uh, propaganda that allegedly the Russians were involved with. And there's some internal correspondence uh, within Twitter talking about how they thought this was completely wrong and that they needed maybe to talk to the times about it. And they solicited a, a second quote from one of the people quoted. And so I thought we would put out all that stuff and, you know, the public would know what had been, you know, kept from them about all these different stories. But it, you know, once we started down that road, it turned out that we couldn't even get past Hamilton 68, you know, once, Matt started doing that work. He was really the first person to to kind of take that on seriously. And he he couldn't even get past the video from one news organization. As a, you know, forget about the print 
treatments of that. Uh, forget about other channels. The the project was dead once he once he started trying to count just the MSNBC stuff. So that's why, that's why we put that video out there, just as an example of like how 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 much of this stuff there is. And if we if we actually counted all of them and made a video of all of it, it would be like you know the Lord of the Rings series or something. It'd be not like you know, a twenty four hour video compilation. Right. Yeah, and it would be you know beyond annoying. Like the the. the 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 humor in Matt's video is that it goes to annoying and then it gets to just agonizingly annoying and then it goes and then it goes on from there to a place that uh, is is rare I would say so um, but that's interesting and and it, it's it was designed to be kind of a, a wrap up of you know stuff that we had found randomly in in the files that uh, otherwise wouldn't get a treatment. And again, I mean, going back to your interview with Mehdi Hassan, the irony of him trying to discredit your reporting based on two uh, or a few minor errors that he caught. And here you have just one story, this Hamilton 68 scam, where you have 269 examples of MSNBC telling outright falsehoods. And of course, not one correction will ever happen. Right. And okay, you can kind of excuse them on the grounds of maybe they, did, they didn't know at the time that's possible. I, I would argue that I would be a little nervous about Hamilton 68 yeah. uh, if I were a reporter. Like, you know, you, you would – because what it was, again, was a, a dashboard that claimed to be tracking Russian influence in real time, but they, they didn't tell you what the mechanism was. So without knowing, you know, the, how that magic machine worked, I'd be really nervous about saying Russian trolls are promoting this or that. But, you know, they didn't know uh, that, it, that it was wrong. They, but they should have known once Hamilton 68 itself changed its methodology after about a year and a half of operation to only tracking accounts like RT and, you know, official government, Russian government accounts. That should have been a big uh clue that there was something wrong with the earlier version um but you know they didn't look back and then even after the twitter files came out nobody looked back and this this kind of speaks to uh, you know what andrew describes as sort of the cartel style of not just the media but politics now it's like everybody's sort of on the same team and if they commit to a mistake, it can be a mistake forever <laughs> because, you know, nobody, nobody's going to break ranks. It's a, it's an amazing thing. I mean, one of our favorite people, Luke Harding um, of The Guardian, he wrote this, I thought, the fascinating. The collusion, which, which does not actually prove collusion. Yeah, exactly. And and Aaron, I think you did, you did the famous interview of him, right? Yeah, where uh, he hung up on Aaron when he asked him about the evidence of collusion. He, Exactly, exactly. So, um, which uh, I guess that that video sort of cancels out my video, unfortunately, now uh, with with many. But <laughs> Harding wrote this really interesting review of a book about Bellingcat, where he talked right. about how in the future, media titles will stop looking at each other as competitors. Right. Um, and they will start to view... Mm-hmm the search for evidence is what he called it. The quote was a shared endeavor. Yes. And, and this is what I think the political model that they're all reaching for now is this shared endeavor. And what's scary about that is that it's a, it's a complete rethink of how democracy works really, because 
and and this is this is where the the Twitter file story got complicated and it became something that was going to be too hard to express in threads and that sort of thing. Because what these people are really talking about when they're all getting together and making these decisions about content that are, you know, it's not just a First Amendment violation. It's not just an antitrust violation. It's a, it's a complete uh, demolition of the whole model of how, how democracy is supposed to work. Civil society organizations are supposed to act as a check on government and, you know, the media. The media is supposed to act as a check on government. The government and private industry are supposed to have separate interests. And, you know, there's supposed to be tension between all of these groups. But in the end, it all works out. If they all decide to be um, collaborators and eliminate the tension and commit to what Harding calls the shared endeavor, then you have something completely different. Then, then there's no... There's no checks and balances right. system anymore, and that, yeah, it's 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 a really it's it's kind of a profound thing. It's it's difficult to express, but you know that's sort of the underlying theme of a lot of what the Twitter file stuff is. It's just this collaboration between a relatively tightly knit group of insiders who have decided that um, they're going to do this thing kind of together and without without the input of um, the public, I guess, you know. Um, and on that note, we have new revelations and something that you covered via the Twitter files, which is the whole scam about dismissing and censoring reporting about the leaks from Hunter Biden's laptop as a Russian propaganda operation. Uh, you revealed via the Twitter files that uh, Twitter acted very quickly to censor this, despite there being no evidence uh, for it. And the basis for all these claims was a group of former intelligence officials writing a letter saying that, in their judgment, that the Hunter Biden laptop has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. They also acknowledged they had no evidence, but that part of their letter was ignored. And Twitter had been basically primed for this uh, after being warned by the FBI that a some sort of hack and leak operation was going to come. And so finally, when the Hunter Biden laptop appeared, Twitter, having been prepared for this by the FBI, just assumed it came from Russia and censored it accordingly. Now we've got new revelations that not only was this whole claim about the Hunter Biden laptop uh, a scam, but actually the idea originated with the Biden campaign. There was the Biden campaign that actually triggered this statement from these former intelligence officials. And this came via an admission from Mike Morrell, the former deputy director of the CIA. You've written now two articles about this admission by Morrell. Uh, and, you know, you pointed out that not only has the media failed to acknowledge Morrell's disclosure, but also there's been, you know, uh, just no reckoning with the fact that people like Morrell dominate the media now. They're, they're paid contributors. So uh, talk to us, Matt, uh, about, you know, Morrell's admission and the complete censorship of it so far, much like the Hunter Biden laptop story was censored based on the statement from Morrell and his intelligence friends. Right. And I... I know there are a lot of people out there, and Aaron, I'm sure you've encountered this too. There are people who roll their eyes as soon as they yeah. hear Hunter Biden laptop story, right? Like, oh, who cares about the Hunter Biden yeah. laptop story? And I, I can kind of understand that, right? Like the, 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 sto the story as it came out in the New York Post that year, it, there wasn't a whole lot of proof of um, you know definite corruption in there. Not yet, anyway, right? Like it, it was suggestive of all kinds of things. It was damaging. It was derogatory. But 
you can see that the Republicans, you know, were primed to make a much bigger deal out of it than there was in, in the New York Post. But that's not that's not the importance of that story. The importance of it was really twofold. I mean, the, the first one was the the blocking of it, which was unprecedented. I mean, it's it's weeks out from a presidential election and it gets uh, stopped by uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Twitter kind of amazingly, and this is something that we didn't find in the Twitter files, but I just got from somebody at Twitter. They even employed this uh, tool to prevent people from exchanging it via DMs, which is something they only used hmm. for like child porn. So hmm. they used the most extreme tools they had to to lock down this story. Now, that only lasted for a little bit, but still, in American history, there's never been um, a story like this. I mean, I guess you could go back to the Pentagon Papers when the Nixon administration tried to argue prior restraint. That was the government doing it. This was private companies. But still, once you start looking at all the actors involved, that w- it was a huge censorship story, I think. Uh, and it, w- it was important on those grounds. Now, because of this new stuff uh, that, that's come out via the weapon, Weaponization of Government Committee, I mean, it's not clear because we haven't seen the whole testimony of Michael Morell yet, who, again, he was the former acting head of the CIA. He was going to be Hillary's CIA director. Very interesting character because he also played a big role in Russiagate. Yep. Um, as you, Aaron, as you know, like he- In August 2016, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying, very similar to the Hunter Biden letter, saying that based on my experience as an intelligence officer, uh, I suspect that Putin may have recruited Trump as a- uh, Winning, unwitting, yeah. unwitting asset of, of the Russian government. Really, this is the exact same playbook uh, in 2016 as he organized in 2020. Right, and so we have to wonder, you know, in, in light of this. Well, we have let's let's go to what happened in the Hunter Biden episode. So now it's come out, you know, Jim Jordan's committee, and again, people are rolling their eyes at Jim Jordan's name. I understand that, but he he questioned Morell. Morell says. He wouldn't have organized this letter by 50 uh, former intelligence officials, including five former heads of the CIA. Um, he wouldn't have done that absent a call from Anthony Blinken, who at the time was a senior advisor to the Biden campaign. So the picture of a, um, you know, a pretty damning looking scandal is already there. Right? We don't know exactly what the the specifics are, but it sounds like the request to do this letter might have come from the Biden administration. Now, why is that bad? Because it was a lie. Uh, They were engineering basically a diversionary tactic with the aid of the intelligence community um, that was then acted upon by all of these complicit journalists who went and you know, and they even went further in their use of language than the actual intelligence officers did um, by calling it, you know, Russian disinfo, which is, uh, you know, they didn't use that term, the, the intel officers. But, you know, I hate to use this overblown comparison, but Watergate uh, was a massive scandal over stuff like the Canuck letter, where you know they were sending a phony letter to the Manchester Union leader that suggested 
candidate Ed Muskie was prejudiced against French Canadians. You know, this is a much huger scale media deception that they were engineering. I, I don't know. I don't I, I don't understand the lack of interest in the story. I mean, well, again, it's the same thing because they're complicit in it. Everybody bought this narrative that this Hunter Biden laptop story just came from Russia and accordingly uh, either cheered on the censorship uh, by social media companies or just ignored it. And of course, this was being done because this was in the interest of the Biden campaign. And, you know, m most people in media wanted Biden to win. And, you know, that's why Glenn Greenwald yeah. had to leave the intercept is because when he was trying to report on this, they wouldn't let him. So he had to resign over it. But look, let's go back to see how the Biden campaign used this. Um, this is a clip from a debate in October 2020, just uh, a week or two before the election. And look at how Biden invoked this letter that his own campaign helped inspire, which, of course, he didn't tell us at the time to dismiss the Hunter Biden laptop story. There are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. They have said that this is has all the care Four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it except the, his and his good friend, Rudy Gianni. You mean the laptop is now yeah. another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? And that's exactly it. what is this that's where you're exactly going? What this is going. where he's going. The laptop right. is Russia, yes. Russia, Gentlemen, Russia? I want to stay on the issue of race. You okay? have to be kidding. Here Mr. we go President? again with Russia. What Biden didn't tell us, and maybe he didn't know, for all we know, was that, you know, it was his own campaign official and now Secretary of State Blinken, who had spearheaded all this by calling up Mike Morrell and sharing with him an article in USA, in USA Today that said the FBI was looking into this laptop thing as a smoke bomb of Russian disinformation. And by the way, in one of the emails Blinken sent to Morrell, there was a uh, there was like a uh, a signature of a senior member of Biden's communications team showing that obviously the Biden team wanted this to get to Morell and want, wanted this out there. And now Democrats in response have said that there was another part of Morell's testimony, which Republicans didn't highlight, which is when they asked him, they said, you know, did Blinken ask you or insinuate that he wanted you to write this statement? And Morell said, no, he did not. He said, no, to my in memory. memory, yeah. To my memory, yeah. So let's, and he, he invoked his memory at least twice, which is interesting. So he's He's allowing some space there for his answer to be wrong by saying my memory, you know, does yeah. not recall. But let's assume his memory is correct. You don't need someone to make a direct ask of you to know what they want. I mean, if you're a seasoned operative in Washington, if someone calls you and says, hey, check out this, you know, there's this thing about Hunter's laptop. They, it could be from Russia. And, you know, it's pretty clear what is being asked of you. And that's why Morell also testified, and Democrats ignore this, that after that debate, after Biden cited that statement in the debate, uh, a senior official in the Biden campaign, that I, uh, I believe the chairman, called up Morell and thanked him for the statement. And the Biden campaign even strategized on disseminating the statement and which specific reporters it would go to. The Biden campaign wanted to go some, to someone in the Washington Post. Ultimately, it went to the Politico. So the idea that the Biden campaign had nothing to do and, with it. And, and that reporter, by the way, was one of the reporters who was at the tabletop exercise. For Politico or, or or for the Washington Post? The, po the Post, yeah. Wow, okay, so the tabletop exercise, and that's just to remind people, that is basically when Twitter was being prepared for the possibility that there'd be some sort of hack and leak operation. Uh, and so this, this this then gets gives them the idea, this primes them 
for when the Hunter Biden laptop story actually drops. And actually, the, the table to exercise even entailed Hunter Biden, right? It was even yeah, the Hunter Biden and Burisma. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. organized by the it's held the, by the, the Aspen's. Aspen's. Yeah. Aspen's. The FBI is involved. Yeah. And by the way, speaking of playbooks, so not only do you have these former intelligence officials, you know, invoking their experience to say this comes from Russia, much as Morell did in 2016 to say that he invoked his experience to say that Trump is a Russian asset, but also it's the same playbook where the campaign has a key role in getting this out there. And then once it gets released, they point to this as if it's independent evidence and they hide the fact they had a role in it, much like the Clinton campaign did this with the Steele dossier and also the Alpha Bank scam. Remember that when the Alpha Bank story finally appeared and even though privately their own contractor Fusion GPS was Fusion GPS was like pushing this to media outlets. When it appeared, I mean, they were Jake generating Sullivan, it. They're generating Jake Sullivan and Hillary Clinton came out and said, look at this story about Trump's secret communications with the Russian bank. It's the exact same playbook. It, it, it's over and over. They're they're doing the same thing. They're generating the news. They're laundering it through some other agency or organization, which then becomes the source for it. And then when it comes out, you know, they say, oh, we're shocked, shocked. Look at this. This is an outrage. And look, at the very least, it's a lie. You know, um, the, the Clinton administration, you know, with the Clinton, when, we, when we learned um, that there was a, you know, senior Trump official who had these links to Russia that, that after Michael Isikoff's story, for instance, um, they didn't learn it. They knew it. They, they, they created that story. Uh, you know, the, I think the tripping point for some people is, is this illegal? Um, no, maybe maybe not. I don't know. I think you'd have you'd have to have come up with a um a new type of legal theory for this kind of thing. But what do you what do you call all these actors working in concert to engineer a massive deception in the middle of um a campaign season? It's certainly corrupt, I think. Uh, but is it is it a crime? I don't know. But it's, well, it's the exact same thing they're accusing Russia of, which is malign interference in an election, spreading lies uh, to impact the outcome. And in this case, not just spreading lies, but spreading lies that enable censorship of factual reporting. It's, I think um, so many people, honestly, uh, some people believed it. But then I think other people, when confronted with it, were just like, who cares? The priority is defeating Trump. Or they'd say, who cares? But Trump. Like, you want to yeah. talk about corruption, but Trump. That was something that we saw a lot of. But look what happened. Because everyone, because many people adopted that attitude, that gave these same intelligence officials and their allies a free pass to deploy that same playbook against Bernie Sanders in 2020 when they leaked claims that Putin was trying to elect him. And that was used to undermine Bernie. So, right. yes, even if you're purely looking at this from a partisan angle and your political interest, at least if you're a progressive, right. that means you're supporting something that will be used to undermine you as is what happened. Yeah. And, and I, I also think, you know, once you start going down the road of saying it's okay to do this or it's okay for us to turn the other way over something, you know, a colossal media lie and an act of censorship because, because Trump is bad, then where does it end? Yeah. Uh, you know, not, not only are you morally going to be stuck going down that road forever, but also the administration owns you from that point forward. You know, once you've been complicit in something like that, what are you going to do? Push back on them after afterward? Yeah. There's not going to be a real, uh, you know, real press coverage of that administration going forward. So I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I keep thinking about this story 
and you, you've you've seen all the president's men i'm, I'm sure right both yeah. of you there's that's you know amazing scene where bob woodward is in the courtroom for the arraignment of the watergate burglars and they get to um the judge asking james mccord what he does for a living and he kind of whispers you know central intelligence agency and bob woodward goes holy shit right like his eyes light up bob woodward was a republican he would have voted for Nixon that year, but the reporter in him, in that scene at least, and you know who knows what what happened in real life, was so jazzed by the scale of that story that it overwhelmed all all the political considerations. It, like those things didn't matter at that point. That's what's puzzling to me about stuff like this. Like, where where's the normal kind of repertorial excitement about? this big thing uh, because it is, isn't it? I, I, I mean, it feels to me like a pretty big story. I, uh, I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm missing something. Well, speaking of Russia baiting and stories that are totally ignored by the media, I wanted to know your thoughts on the recent indictment of four <sighs> U.S. citizens uh, and three Russians uh, charged with conspiring to use U.S. citizens as illegal agents of the Russian government. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great having Matt back. The co-founder of the show, a lot to talk about, a lot of topics. And uh, if you subscribe to our Substack, usefulidiots.substack.com, you get a lot more bonus content from the interview. We got into a lot. And a lot. That was great a little gossipy. Some of it's a little gossipy. A little gossipy. Yeah. Hey, yeah. You know, we're not above gossip on the show. No, we're not above it. Not yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. We should start doing a, a new feature. <laughs> Spilling the tea. In elementary school, I had a column called uh, Grade 5 Gossip. What? Or something like that, Gossip Today. It was in Grade 5. It was called Gossip Today or Grade 5. Anyway, yeah. Canadians but, call fifth grade Grade 5, by the way. Grade 5, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, I wasn't allowed to actually, go, you know, I, I wasn't allowed to gossip because you couldn't print stuff about your classmates in a, in a in a student newspaper. So I just talked about how much I hated new kids on the block and how I was basically jealous of them. Yeah. That, that, and they that printed that? Uh, yeah, they did. Yeah. Like the school's funds went into it, that? It was like a class. It was like a little like newsletter, like on, on printed paper. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. Uh, but that was a great interview with Matt Taibbi. Star, even back then. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And that was great. That was a great interview with Matt Taibbi. And yeah. uh, subscribe to hear more. Yeah. Usefulidiots.substack.com. Bye, everyone. Bye. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 